Scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 to 21. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 to 21. This is the word of the Lord. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. This is on. Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here with you. We are in Ephesians chapter 3. <clears throat> uh, I went through my Google Drive folder because I write all my sermons on Google Docs. Um, and then sometimes I write it with a pen and quill. I'm just kidding. I don't do that. But, uh, and I noticed that we originally started this series in Ephesians together uh, over a year ago. We started this series in March of 2021. It is now almost July of 2022. And we are in chapter 3. Uh, but since we have the next few weeks together kind of sequentially, um, I'm hoping that we'll be able to finish the series in Ephesians by about 2035, based on the rate that we're going right now. Uh, but this morning we find ourselves in Paul's prayer that comes at the end of uh, chapter 3. And it's a prayer that's both fascinating as well as instructive. So this morning as we look into God's word today, uh, we'll ask ourselves three questions. Okay, number one, what is the content of Paul's prayer here in Ephesians chapter 3? Number two, what is the reason for Paul's prayer? And number three, what is the relevance of Paul's prayer? So what is the content of his prayer? What is the reason for his prayer? And what is the relevance of his prayer? Now, I'm going to be honest with you, and I'm going to tell you that I spend way too much time of my sermon prep trying to come up with another R for the first point, because it just felt wrong to have content, reason, relevance. And so I spent a lot of time trying to come up with one, but as you can see, I did not manage to come up with one, but hopefully we can still be blessed despite my lack of alliteration. Um, so pray for me. Okay, so what is the content of Paul's prayer? What is it that he's saying here in Ephesians chapter 3? What is he praying for? We can see that the Apostle Paul makes two main requests in his prayer. First, in verses 16 to 17, he asks God to send his Holy Spirit to fill the hearts of believers in Ephesus with power so that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. Okay, so let's pause for a moment here, and let's unpack that first half of the prayer. What does the Apostle Paul mean when he prays this? This is a weird thing that he's praying. Why is he asking God to send his spirit so that Christ would dwell in the hearts of these Christians in Ephesus? Doesn't being a Christian mean that Christ is already dwelling in your heart? 
If he's speaking to believers in Ephesus, why is Paul asking God to send the Spirit for Christ to dwell in the hearts of believers? I mean, isn't that just sort of the, the basic fundamentals of Christianity? If you've ever prayed a sinner's prayer at, like, retreat or somebody led you through it or whatever, like, I mean, isn't that like a basic thing? Like, dear God, I confess that I'm a sinner. Come into my heart and be Lord of my life. Or something along those lines, right? So if these people are already believers, that means they already have Christ dwelling in their hearts. So then why is Paul asking God to send the Spirit so that Christ might dwell? We know that they're already believers. Chapters 1 and 2 tell us that these people are already Christians. Christ is already dwelling in them. So what is he praying for then? If you look at the Greek verb that's being used in verse 17 um, for dwell, it has a very strong uh, construction grammatically. And the verb itself is also a very strong verb. And the combination of sort of that verb's meaning and its construction, it gives a different implication of dwelling. It gives an implication of dwelling that implies an enduring and permanent sense of dwelling. You see, what Paul is saying is when you become a believer, Christ initially, he comes in and he begins to dwell in your heart. But what you need as a Christian and what Paul is praying for is for Christ to begin to occupy a larger and more permanent portion of their heart. These believers have experienced the initial indwelling of Christ, but Christ has yet and needs to still more fully expand and take greater control and deeper permanence in the dwelling place of their heart. And if you've ever moved anywhere in your life, you know what this is like. Because you know that moving out of a house is not the same as moving into a house. And you know that moving into a house is not the same as making a house your home. I once moved to an apartment in Philly, and I moved out, like, in one day. And then I moved in over a period of a month. Okay? And that's not like, oh, I didn't have a key and I was sleeping somewhere else. I was just so tired, I just never unpacked my boxes. Like, I had a mattress, and it was in a mattress bag, but I was so tired, I never took it out of the mattress bag, so I just slept on the floor. And then I had a table from Ikea, I was just too tired to assemble it. So for a full month, I ate lamyon off the back of a lamyon box every day for a full month, because I was just too tired to unpack. I had moved out, but I hadn't yet moved in. I was like some kind of, like, homeless squatter that had broken into this apartment. But you see, even after I finished moving in, and I had finally unpacked the last box and assembled the last piece of furniture, it was a full year before that house ever became a home for me. And if you've ever moved from a smaller place to a bigger place, you know what I mean. It takes time. It takes energy to figure out how to make a house a home that you can live in. And you see, the believers in Ephesus, they've, they've already experienced this initial indwelling of Christ, but Paul is now asking God to send the Spirit so that Christ would be, make a home now in their hearts. And this is a natural thing over the course of a life of a Christian, right? When you first become a Christian, Christ, he indwells in your heart, and he, has rulers, like he, he rules over a certain element of your life. Right? Like, this happens all the time. People, you know, they come up, they tell their testimonies. They're like, yeah, like, you know, when I was in college, I used to party and drink a lot all the time. And then, you know, like, I went to church, and then I met Jesus, and I don't party and drink anymore because I know I shouldn't do that as a Christian anymore. 
But then what happens? You grow and you mature as a Christian, and it's no longer just about the partying and the drinking, right? All of a sudden, Jesus has things to say about the words you speak, the way you spend your money, the way you work, where you go, what you choose to watch, who you choose to meet with, how you eat, right? Over time, he expands his dwelling place in your heart. So in verse 17, the Apostle Paul, he summarizes what this indwelling of Christ looks like. And he summarizes it by describing it as being rooted and grounded in love. And that's the first half of his prayer. And the second half of his prayer, in his second petition, Paul then prays, and he says, God, after these believers are rooted and grounded in love, won't you give them the strength to comprehend and know how long, how high, how deep, and how wide is the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge? And won't you fill them with all of your fullness. Now, this part of the prayer is especially unusual and unexpected. Paul asks God to empower these believers. He asks God, he says, God, won't you give them the strength they need for the task at hand? I want you to imagine for a moment that you're hanging out here, you're eating sarku, which is what's going to be served for lunch, and you're talking with somebody, and you say, hey, how are you? And they say, honestly, could really use your prayers lately. I just really need God to strengthen and empower me right now. And you say, oh, of course, brother or, or sister, how can I pray for you? What, what's going on? Why do you need God's strength and power in your life? Are you, are you getting ready to go on mission? Are you experiencing some deep trial in your life? And they say, no, 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 no. I need God's power and strength in my life so I can know how much he loves me. It's an unusual prayer. It feels foreign and strange to us. For most of us, when we ask others to pray for us, and when we pray for ourselves, it's almost always because there's some specific task we need to complete, some goal we need to reach, or some situation we need to resolve. We say, hey, can you pray for me? Things have been really stressful and hard. And I've just been fighting all the time with my parents, or I've been fighting with my spouse, or I've been fighting with my kids. Or we say, hey, can you pray for me? I'm, I've got this great opportunity at work. I'm up for this position, and I, I think it'd make me really happy. Or we say, can you pray for me? I've got to lead a Bible study, and honestly, I'm really nervous. Now, don't misunderstand. Okay? There is nothing wrong with praying for these things or asking others to pray for these things. God invites us to, the Bible urges us to, take all of our petitions and all of our prayers to the Lord. When I was younger, I used to pray all the time that God would give me a hot wife, okay? I kid you not, by his grace, it's happening. Uh, but I mean, I, I mean, I'm not joking, I really prayed for this. I wanted this so bad that there was a period of time where I stopped praying for like a month or two because I was so worried that God might call me to be celibate. Like, I was so worried, I was like really like into like, like, like charismatic, like tongues and voices and stuff. And I was always, I was really worried. Like one day I'd be like praying and then I'd be like, oh, you know, and then all of a sudden I would hear God's voice and be like, be celibate. And then I'd be like, no, right? So I was like, well, you can't talk to me if I'm not praying. So I just avoided praying for like three months. Um, so I get it. It's okay. God invites us to take all of our prayers and all of our petitions to him. So let me invite you to take a moment, just, just, just take one second and reflect on what have you been praying for this week? This week, 
what are the things that you've been praying for? What have you prayed about? What did you say in those prayers? And I think if we were to examine the content of our prayers really carefully, we would find that a majority of our prayers can be distilled down to the same prayer. God, I want to be happy and comfortable. I want this opportunity at work because it will make me happy. I'm going through this tough time and I want it to be resolved because I want to be comfortable. I don't want to be so stressed because I want to be happy. The truth is, for a vast majority of our prayers, they can mostly be boiled down to this. And most of the times when we ask others for prayer, it can be boiled down to the same essence. Can you pray for me? I want to be happy and I want to be comfortable. But this is not the prayer that the Apostle Paul prays. He says, can I pray for you? I want you to know how deep and how long and how wide the love of Christ is for you. Because for the Apostle Paul, this is the most important and greatest thing a Christian could possibly receive or ever be prayed for about, to know how much Christ loves them, to be filled with the fullness of God. We see this time and time again throughout his writings. I mean, look at Philippians. What does he say? He says, I consider everything to be lost for the sake of of knowing the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus, my Lord. You see, this knowledge of Christ's love, this knowledge of knowing how much it is that Christ loves you, this is the foundation that all Christian life has to be built on. Let me take you like on a sort of like a meta view of where we are in, in Ephesians right now. We're at the very end of Ephesians chapter 3. This is literally the end. And everything up until now, the Apostle Paul has building, been building a theological foundation for what does it mean to be a Christian, how did God save you, and what is he doing with you? He says God saved you, he reconciled you, Jesus in his mercy, he died for you, and now he's uniting Jew and Gentile together. He's uniting believers together to build a temple for his glory and, and, and for the sake of the world. And then here in Ephesians 3, he prays that the people of God would have the strength to know the love that Christ has for them. And then starting in chapter 4 all the way to the end, the Apostle Paul begins to describe the life of a Christian. He begins to tell you how a Christian is supposed to live, how a Christian is supposed to work, how a Christian is supposed to look, how a Christian is supposed to be. In chapter 4, the Apostle Paul commands believers to unity in the body, regardless of cultural preferences, regardless of political stances, regardless of opinions about a myriad of other issues. He commands believers to unity. He tells them to leave behind their old ways of thinking, to throw away their old desires. He commands them to be angry, but don't sin, to only allow pure talk to come out of their mouths. 
In chapter 5, he commands church members to submit to one another, wives to submit to their husbands, and husbands to lay down their lives and sacrifice their desires and goals for their wives. In chapter 6, he calls bondservants to submit to their masters, children to submit to their parents, parents to be faithful, and masters to be faithful to their children and bondservants, and he calls all believers to resist the devil and wage spiritual warfare at every turn because we do not fight a battle of just flesh and blood. And what he is doing is he is showing us, he's building this foundation, and he's saying all this other stuff in chapters 4, 5, and 6, it has to flow out of here. You cannot do these things as a Christian if it does not come out of this foundation of knowing Christ's love for you and being filled with the fullness of God. Any attempts at righteousness that do not start from this foundation ultimately ends in self-righteousness. Any attempts at holiness and Christian living that do not begin here from this foundation of knowing Christ's love will always end badly. And I think the truth is that for a lot of us, for a lot of the time, we try to be holy, we try to be righteous, we try to do the good thing, the right thing, the Christian thing, not because we know that God loves us, but because we're afraid that he might not. And we're hoping that if we live well enough, Maybe he'll finally start to love us. Or maybe we'll finally know how much he loves us. Or maybe he'll love us a little bit more than he does now. Or he'll stop being so upset with us if we just live well enough. This kind of living is the very thing Christ died to free us from. The knowledge of Christ's love for us has to be the basis and the foundation of all of our Christian living. Is it any surprise then why the Apostle Paul would make this his prayer for the Christians in Ephesus? So that brings us to our second question. What is the reason for Paul's prayer? Right? Because, so this is the foundation of the Christian life, right? To know Christ's love for us and to be filled with the fullness of God. Anything done that's not coming from this foundation ultimately ends in sin or idolatry or foolishness. This is the only way for believers to live a life of, of true holiness, to put away the old. Everything that you do as a believer has to flow out of here. In your parenting, in your marriages, in your workplaces, whether you're eating, whether you're drinking, whether you're sleeping, whether you're waking, in everything in your faith, it has to come out of this foundation. So simple enough, right? You want to be a better Christian? You want to know what the key to holiness is? You have to know that God really loves you. You have to know how much Christ loves you. So I'm here today to tell you that God loves you more than you could ever know. He loves you so much that he's worthy of all your attention and all your affection and all your devotion. He loves you so richly, so deeply, so fully that words cannot explain, that actions cannot describe, and songs cannot capture the full length of how much he loves you. If you're a Christian, you should know that every moment of every day, of every second, that you are loved, and you are loved so sacrificially, so selfishly, so fiercely, and dare I say, so recklessly. Just kidding. God doesn't love recklessly, unless you mean in a passionate sort of sense. 
for those of you who don't know, there was like this really controversial theological war that happened over the song Reckless Love and whether or not it was appropriate to say that. It reminded me of the, uh, the culture wars of the mid-2000s of whether it was a sloppy wet kiss or unforeseen kiss. Uh, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, that's okay. I am the worship pastor, so I've got to throw in a worship reference every once in a while. But he loves you. And he loved you, and he sent his son to die for you so that you could be changed and so that you could be transformed. Isn't that awesome? Isn't he worthy? Isn't he so good? He loves you more than you could possibly hope for, far beyond what you could ever imagine. Isn't he worthy of our worship and our love and our devotion? Now go out there and be holy. Go be changed. Go transform your life. It's not so easy though, right? I mean, isn't it the truth that just because I tell you that God loves you and he's worthy of your praise and he's worthy of your obedience doesn't change how you might feel right now. Just because you tell yourself that God loves you or you read it in your Bible or you sing it in a song, it doesn't suddenly mean that your feelings will shift and change. I think for many of us on our Christian walk, we struggle because we're told that we're supposed to love God. And we know that we're supposed to love God. And we're instructed and commanded to go love God. And then so we try to love God. And sometimes in that trying, we have these intense moments of affection for God. But then what happens is sooner or later, we kind of just drift off. And then somebody guilt trips us. Maybe in a sermon, maybe at a retreat, maybe in a Bible study. Somebody guilt trips us and says, you should be loving God more. And we say, you're right, I should be loving God more. What's wrong with me? And eventually we start to feel like, man, maybe the problem is just me. Maybe I'm just, I'm just too lazy. Maybe I'm not mature enough. And so this is the issue, right? Because we think the problem is us, we think ultimately the solution then, well, it's got to be us. I just got to try harder. I just got to be more disciplined, four spiritual disciplines, you know? I got to read the Bible more. But I want you to pause for a second and ask yourself this question. Why isn't the Apostle Paul just teaching this? Why is he praying I mean, think about it. This guy is like the greatest teacher in the Christian faith, after Jesus, you know, obviously. Right? This guy is responsible for more churches, more Christians, and more theology than anyone else in the history of the Christian faith. This guy was teaching revelations of God that were so deep and so amazing that he literally writes in one of his letters, man, these revelations I'm teaching are so good, I'm going to become cocky because of it, because so many people are being blessed by this. If anyone could teach you how to love God more, wouldn't it be this guy? So why does he bother praying for it? Because he knows that it is impossible to know the love of Christ or to be filled with the fullness of God by human effort or strategy or strength. I mean, look at what he's saying. He says that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. 
How can you know something that surpasses knowledge? By definition, something that surpasses knowledge is impossible to know. That's why it surpasses knowledge. How can you, finite human, be filled with all the fullness of infinite God when we can't even begin to wrap our minds around what it even means to be infinite? He is asking us to do this impossible thing. And so he knows that this is something that cannot be taught. It cannot be learned. It is something that only God can do. To know how high and deep and long and wide the love of Christ is for us requires divine intervention, and so he prays. And that brings us to the third question. What is the relevance of his prayer? You know, the older I get, the more I find that aging is a uh, strange and humbling experience. When I was in my teens, I I thought I would have my life figured out by the time I was in my mid-20s. Right? Like, when I was like 16, 17, 18, I was like, man... By the time I'm like 25, I'm going to be like married. I'm going to know what I want to do. I'm going to have my life together. Like I'm going to be on path in my career. But then I hit to my mid-20s and I was like, I do not know who I am. I don't know where I'm going. And I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing in life. And then I I thought, okay, you know, by the time I get to seminary, I'm going to have this whole Christian faith thing figured out. Right? All I'm going to do in seminary is I'm just going to learn how to help other people figure it out. But like, I'm going to have it down by then. But then I got to seminary and I found out, no, that's not true either. I thought I'd have life figured out then by my 30s. But that didn't happen for me either. And then I thought, okay, you know, by the time I get ordained, I'll have it figured out. I mean, I'll be a reverend, legally. It's on all my documents. Reverend. And then I hit my 30s. And you know what? I'm 32, and the only thing I know at this point in my life is I know a lot less than I feel like I'm supposed to. And I'm a lot more sinful than I had hoped I would be. I thought by now I would feel really differently about prayer meeting and Bible reading and fasting. But guys, I'll be honest, fasting is still hard. Reading the Bible can still be challenging. And I'll be honest, I still fall asleep in prayer meeting. And sometimes I'm leading the prayer meeting. I was leading a prayer meeting one time with 14 volunteer teachers. And we're like praying and we're like, oh, God, we just pray for our students at this, you know, in, in our ministry. And God, we just pray for the upcoming services. And God, we pray for this and we pray for that. And then I was like, all right, guys, to close, we're going to go clockwise. And everybody just say a quick prayer. And when it comes to me, I'll close the meeting. And we're like, okay. And then so we started going down the line. And I don't know what happened, but all I know is the next thing I know, it's totally silent. And I'm like, what's going on? And then it hits me. I'm like, oh my God, I fell asleep. And I was like, everyone is waiting on me to close. How long have I been asleep? And I'm I'm like trying to figure out like how do I salvage my way out of this and I'm just going to be totally honest with you. I just decided to lie. So what I I did was I just, I I, I like woke up and I kept my eyes closed. And so I I was like, oh my God, what's going on? And so I was like, okay. So I just kept my eyes closed and I went, Mm, yes, God. Uh, 
Lord, we just pray. And I just pretended like I was having some like deep moment of meditation with the Lord, okay? So that was probably the most dishonest thing I've ever done in prayer meeting. But do you know what I mean? Like by now I figured I was done with that kind of thing. I'm not a youth kid anymore. I'm gonna fall. What am I doing still falling asleep in prayer meetings? I called this prayer meeting. I said that I would close. What am I doing? By this point in my life, I thought I would be a lot better at dealing with stress. I thought I'd have a lot more faith and a lot less fear. I thought I'd have a lot more stability, and I thought I would have a lot better idea of where I'm going with my life and what God wants to do with me and who I am. I thought I would be less anxious and more stable. I also thought I'd be less fat. And honestly, when I think about that, it can sometimes feel impossibly discouraging because it feels like the only thing I know and the only thing that I have continued to know my entire life is that I am not anywhere near where I'm supposed to be. But it's here in this place we see that God's word is relevant not only to what we are praying about, but it is also relevant because it teaches us about the power of prayer. And you may already know this, but prayer is not a tool by which we convince God to do what we ask. So we often treat it like it is. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard writes in Fear and Trembling, prayer does not change God, but it changes him who prays. Prayer is not some magical method by which we convince God to do what it is that we need. It's here in Ephesians 3 that Paul illustrates for us that prayer is the external expression of the internal longing and confession of the soul. It is your body expressing with words and with posture what your soul is confessing, that I cannot do this. I need help. We do not pray because it will change God. We pray because it changes us. It is in the daily act. It is in every act and every word of prayer that God begins to fill us with the hope and the endurance that we need to see the work that he is doing in us. You want to see God working in your life? Do you know what you need to see God working in your life? You need hopeful endurance. The often overlooked, underappreciated, and forgotten power of prayer is a power of hopeful endurance. We oftentimes think that the only times prayer is effective is when the thing that we are asking for gets granted. And we think prayer's only power is to grant the things that we ask for. But the overlooked and hidden power of prayer is that it is in that praying that we tap into this hopeful endurance that God gives to us. The road in front may look impossibly difficult, but in his prayer, Paul offers us a roadmap for how we can pray and engage in prayer in such a way that lets us tap into this power. When we look at Paul's prayer, 
we see that there's these two major characteristics of it. First, it is relational. He begins his prayer by confessing that it is the Father that we pray to. And then he ends the prayer by reminding us of what kind of Father we have. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, I may not be able to imagine how I get from the person I am now to the person deep down I know I'm supposed to be. But he does. And he is getting me there. Today you may feel broken and run down. But God is not finished with you. And he is working on you still. You may feel the painful sting of your immaturity and the places where you lack and all the places where you still need to grow and still need to mature, and you know what? You would be right. But in prayer, we tap into that enduring hope that I may not be there yet, but I am growing, and God is growing me. He is not finished with me. You may have experienced some cataclysmic moment in your life that has left you shaken and broken and unsure of what anything is and what the way forward is. But in this prayer, we confess, I don't know the way forward. I don't know how this broken thing gets made new. I don't know how all this gets put back together, but I know that you're not finished with me yet. And you're working. Paul reminds us that we are praying to the Father who makes possible the things that are impossible, who transforms the old things into new things, sinners into saints, who brings light out of darkness, and that that Father, this Father, is at work in us, transforming us step by step. He is teaching us the love that Christ has for us. He is building in us this foundation that we need for Christian living. And sometimes those steps are so small, we can't see them until enough time has passed and enough steps have been taken that it is impossible not to notice. But in every step we take, we are reminded that he is at work in us. And as we pray, we constantly discipline and remind our souls, don't give up. He's not finished with me yet. He is still working. He is still transforming. He is still teaching me. He is still empowering me. He is still filling me with all the fullness of God. And one day, I will know how much you love me and everything will be different. So church, can you pray for me? Can you pray that God would grant me the strength and the power that I need to know what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? And I will pray for you so that you too might be filled with all the fullness of God.
that one day we will be able to see each other and say, now I see all the work that God has been doing in you. Why don't you pray with me? Gracious God, we're so thankful that today we get to come to you with full hope and full expectation. Placing our hope and our trust, not in our strategies, not in our wisdom, but God, in this prayer, we confess that we cannot do this. We cannot change ourselves. We cannot make our cold hearts warm. We cannot make our dead hearts alive. We cannot bring life out of dry and dead bones, but God, we know that you can. So it's in this prayer that we submit to you and we surrender to you, God. We commit not to changing ourselves, but to committing ourselves to the process of change that you are putting us through. So we're so thankful that today you hear our prayers. We're so thankful that you are able to do far more than we ask, far more than we could possibly think of, far more than we could possibly imagine, and we place our hope and trust in it, both today and forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And we'll respond in worship.